Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The former US Army intelligence analyst turned whistleblower and transparency activist Chelsea Manning joined us in London last month to tell Hannah McInnes her astonishing life story. It's the subject of her new book, readme.txt. Hello everyone, Um, good evening. evening. (laughs) That is a a great welcome. It's wonderful to see so many of you here. I can't think where else you'd be given, of course, this company, given the opportunity for this this event this evening. I'm delighted to welcome you on behalf of the How To Academy. My name's Hannah McInnes um, and it's really a privilege to be hosting this particular event, to have this chance to hear about an extraordinary, unique story that captivated the world for years and firsthand from the person at the centre of it, although we'll hear quite often she had no idea she was at the centre of it. (laughs) Um, The story is one that is um, written about grippingly in the book that has inspired this event. Many of you may have it already. Um, I'm sure you'll be getting it on the way out if you haven't. Readme.text. I don't think the author of it needs much introduction. I'm sure not to you uh, as a very enthusiastic as you've showed audience. Um, She is, of course, an American transparency activist, a politician, a former U.S. Army intelligence analyst, and now works as a security consultant and expert in data science and machine learning. Um, She's also written for The Guardian and The New York Times. And I think this is your first book, isn't it? Uh, this is my first full book, yes. Your first full book. Uh, I have contributed to, uh, to a couple other books, Captive Genders. I was a contributor, mm-hmm. uh, contributing writer, and uh, I think there was other, one other compilation that I've contributed portions of a book to. And also, uh, I have read through books uh, yeah. by other people and you know, given my thoughts and insights and things. Actually, I loved reading in your book about how many just how many thousands of books you read. But we will come to that. Well, thou- <laughs> roughly over a thousand. Over a thousand. In prison. We've jumped ahead of ourselves. Right. It's so wonderful to have you here. And yeah. I wonder if you could start by telling us why you decided you, you wanted to write this book, why you wanted to tell your story. So the genesis of this book is actually, um, actually comes from around the end of 2014. So I... You know, I had just, you know, I, I had finally settled down into prison, uh, the general population, for a while. Um, so this is like, you know, a year and a half after the court-martial. Um, and uh, I had just enough time in the library, and I, you know, things had just settled down enough to where I could creatively write 
uh, and be able to, to sort of do things in the library. Um, so we had these computers where we could type something in Word or, or something like that. Or, and then um, we weren't able to save anything, but we were able to print something. Uh, and so if you wanted to type something up, you, you'd have to retype the entire document to like make a change or something like that because so, you weren't able to like edit, edit a file or anything like that. So uh, I started writing basically the first draft, the manuscript of uh, my life story, you know, because I was, one of the concerns that I had was that, you know, I had a, a lengthy sentence ahead of me, you know, from my, from my perspective, I was, I was concerned about, you know, like, oh, over the next, like, 30 or so years that I'm in prison for, you know, like, you know, I'll start to lose some of the, the like, the memory of, mm. of, of, of my youth and, and, and my time up to, being incarcerated or being like in, you know, like in, while I was in Iraq itself, and I wanted to make sure that I had that down in, for whenever I, I did write a memoir uh, much later. Uh, obviously, things changed and things transpired. You know, the, and by 2017, like the uh, commutation happened. Um, you know, where President Obama commuted my sentence uh, from uh, from 35 years to time served plus 120 days or 119 days or something like that. And so by that time, uh, I had basically had this pretty lengthy manuscript of up to, you know, around 2010. And so uh, we pitched this as a book. And, uh, you know, this, and this book is now, uh, is now a pared-down version of that with the, added, with the addition of uh, I went and I included the sort of period of time while I was incarcerated uh, all the way up to the commutation. And, uh, yeah, and so the real, the, I mean, the, the main purpose of writing this book was to tell my story because I feel like, I feel like there's so many big personalities and so many big events and things like that, um, but it's really, for me personally, this is just such a small snapshot of my time that people were very hyper-focused on. You know, I had, uh, an, you know, from my perspective, my childhood and my upbringing and sort of how the world around me is shaped, uh, has been uh, sort of changed around me over time and how I've been shaped by my environment and how I grew up, you know, um, and how living through prison and living through the military, being a houseless person, being queer and trans um, have really shaped who I am, and all of these different experiences have, have, have really shaped me and, and made me the person I am today. And I'm also only 34 years old, so I, I, I don't view this as like a memoir. Um, I was very hesitant to write a memoir. Um, so I view this more as like a, because, you know, I'm, I'm more of a, I'm more into like young adult books. Um, so I, I wanted to tell a story that was really a coming of age story because that's how I feel about uh, about about my own sort of, upbringing for who I am today and all of the challenges and all of the things that, that I, I that I've yet to, to accomplish that you know will be in the eventual like hopefully another memoir at some point <laughs> in um, a few in a few years a few years from now a lot more than that I hope so, so I mean all, all of those things um that you've you've spoken about right. there your your upbringing all of those parts that you bring in that shaped you I want to sort of get through as much of that um as we can right but you begin with this 
brilliant scene um, right. in Barnes and Noble, and I wonder if you could set set the scene as you do for for the audience. And well, you're in sure. in Maryland in, in Barnes and Noble, and the contrast. Between and I, this... I want to just add, you know, like that, you know, like when I wrote this book, it was chronological. So the, yeah. this was a, the, you know, like we we moved, uh, you know, with the publisher and the editor, we we made an editorial decision to sort of put this at the beginning to. Sort of mm. set the stage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, and it does it so brilliantly. It kind of okay. grabs the grabs the reader in, as as you will see if you haven't read it yet. And I'd love you to do the same thing now. This kind of sort of this unbelievable contrast between the terrible internet and your surroundings and what you're doing there. Right. So you know, I'm. Yeah, it, it was a very long process to get to this point where you know, essentially, I you know, I was on leave from Iraq. I had this idea of, you know, I wanted to release, um, I, I wanted to release a, what I entitled the book after, which is yeah. um, readme.txt, which is a file that basically describes these repositories, these two, um, uh, the Sydney A and Sydney I repositories, which are the, you know, now known as the uh, Iraq war logs and the Afghan war logs. Um, not my titles, but, you know, like that's, that, that, that's what stuck. I, uh, and... It really is an encapsulation uh, and a description of the uh, true face of 21st century asymmetric warfare, which is a fancy way of saying being a sort of an occupying power, dealing with an insurgency and how messy and ugly. And um, because at the, at the time in 20, by, by around 2010, you know, it was the second year of the Obama administration. And despite, you know, the years prior there's still being like the, the continuation of, of, of the war on terror from the Bush administration. I mean, it kind of lost its glee. It's, it's like appeal in terms of like its discussion in the broader media and, and landscape at, at, back at home. And I wanted to draw attention to this. And, and so like I tried to reach out to um, the New York times or first I went to the Washington post because I'm an avid reader of the Washington post uh, at this time. And, uh, and try to reach out to a reporter. Uh, and then there was like a blizzard that happened. So one of the worst blizzards to hit the D.C. area had hit while I was on leave. Um, there was no electricity. You know, we had no internet. Um, and, uh, I, and I had essentially brought these files on an SD card that I had in my possession. And so running out of time uh, and running out of options, um, you know, I... I, I and after making an attempt to make contact with the Washington, with the Washington, well, I made contact with the Washington Post, but you know we had some difficulty in terms of like understanding what we were discussing because I didn't want to discuss things over the phone. I didn't want to write it in an email. Um, I wanted to use encrypted communications, but they're like, well, can't you just put it in an email? And I'm like, no. Um, and uh, and and by this time, you know, I basically had two days left before leave, and so then I. Rented out a car. I finally man- managed to get a car rental. Dug out this car from this mound of snow. Um, dug it out, uh, not with my bare hands or anything. I had the gloves, but like, I didn't have like a, a shovel or anything. And uh, finally get, got this car running. And uh, I found a, a bookstore that I, that I frequented quite often. And it had a Starbucks attached to it. And I knew that it had Wi-Fi. Um, so I tried to use the Wi-Fi internet to try to upload this information. And... Again, like, you know, I have one day left. You know, the next day I'm off uh, to Reagan National Airport to fly to Atlanta and go back to Iraq. Um, and w- with almost no time at all, 
uh, I, I make a sort of desperate attempt to upload this stuff in, in the last minute. And, um, and it almost didn't happen because, you know, the wife, you know, there was uh, problems with the Wi-Fi. Um, it wasn't very stable. And I, um, you know, I'm sitting there drinking coffee and listening to music as, as I'm trying to, to do, the, do this upload. And it, the way it was done, like if it, if it was, there was no partial, right? So it was encrypted in such a way that, you know, like you would need the complete file, because um, I, I didn't want to partial, and so uh, so I, I finally got this thing uploaded. But uh, there was a moment there where I was just like, you know what, this is just not meant to be. You know, it's just not. This isn't working out, and I don't have any time left, and you know I'm running out of options. So I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I sort of made made the decision then and there that you know if I didn't get it done then, then I was just going to abandon this process and never return to it again. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll let that, as the book does, kind of right. dot, dot, dot. And then you return, um, as you've mentioned, to your upbringing. And you, you talk about, you talk very move, movingly about um, your childhood. Uh, you grew up with a, a, a mother who was from Wales, but right. who, who had a, a real problem with alcohol. Your father, you say, beat the crap out of you. Why was that important to sort of go back, explore that, and the impact it had on you going Forward. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, like I, I, I didn't realize just how, you know, because I, I, I was an upper, was an upper middle class, um, you know, like person uh, growing up in central Oklahoma, you know, very rural sort of, you know, lifestyle. But, you know, we were we were fairly well off. You know, I had a computer. I had a laptop even as a even as a, a young, as a fairly young child in the 1990s. But despite this, you know, there was a lot of sort of instability within the family. Although I didn't really understand that, you know, the other that that my life was was different than other people's lives at this point. So I didn't really know that there, that there was anything different. But yeah, like my my I had this sort of fraught relationship with my father, where it was essentially he was just constantly mad at me, and uh, you know, the the I just wanted I, I just wanted him to, you know, really open up or, you know, like, I, I just wanted him to appreciate me and to tell me that he loved me. Uh, and, and, you know, the only thing, the, and the only thing that seemed to really catch his attention or do anything was to be a, um, you know, was to be good academically. So I, I really focused on that. And also we had a, a sort of mutual interest in computers. And so he helped me uh, uh, learn how to do some of the early programming. I didn't understand it at first but by the time I was like seven or eight I started to, to grasp sort of the basic concepts of what he was trying to te- teach me but yeah I, I feel like all of this is just sort of what shapes my background and you know and, and as a part of my life story and uh, and then obviously my sister plays more and more of a, a of a pivotal role in terms of uh, of, of being sort of a, a, a third parent in my life and in, in terms of like my uh, my my mother attempting suicide, uh, my father, you know, sort of not being available, uh, and so my sister eventually, you know, just played more and more of a role. And I also just like really admired my sister. You know, she was just a tremendous source of uh, energy and support and love uh, that I that I had at this time. <laughs> 
Mm. Yeah, that, re that really uh, comes through. And she, she's a, a, a very strong character at that time. And swirling around with all of this is, is what you call um, a toothache that never goes away. Right, yeah. Um, which is just sort of the feeling of your, your gender dysphoria. Right. So that was there from, what, as long back as... Well, I mean, remember? I didn't know what it was, right? You know, it's just this, you know, gender... Gen, you know, what, what's, what I now know is called gender dysphoria, you know, which is like the sort of... Not knowing, you know, sort of like, because like I, I always knew I was different, right? You know, everybody around me knew I was different. Everybody was telling me constantly. I was getting this constant negative feedback from people growing up, you know, that uh, that that I was uh, extremely effeminate, that I was different, um, that my, you know, it was just something, you know, something was was different about me. And so, and so, so yeah. So I, I I always just felt sort of different and and receiving all this sort of different energy from people um, and feeling really out of place or out of step with things. Um, it wasn't until I was, uh, it wasn't until, you know, my late teens through the internet that I sort of started to understand this thing because, like, you know, the, the way that I understood trans people from mass media that of the 90s at least um, was, it was always viewed through, like, this lens of, like, oh, the, like, it's the, it's the, it's the victim prostitute and law and order or something like that. Like, that was my, that was my only really, understanding of this kind of thing so uh, it wasn't until the communities started to 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 grow and information started to, to to seep through that I was really able to understand this but yeah like I went through years of sort of experimenting with sort of my gender presentation my and who I am and uh and, and tr just trying to figure this out, stuff out and it was, you know it was very very difficult in that era because like no you know the average person didn't know what a trans person was in the 90s and you say in Oklahoma gender um, roles were as fixed as the land so that was yeah the exactly and you know this, this was even the case like in comparison because I I went to secondary school here in the UK in southwest Wales and you know the the gender roles in in Oklahoma you know like it, it was to the point where you know the like if if you were at a school dance uh in, in middle school like you know it was, it, like it was just the, there was no commingling of the genders right it was just like boys on one side girls on the other side no, you know nothing in between uh and um you know it, 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 you know but by the time I got to the UK you know, like it was, it was like sort of like co-ed and every, you know, pe people come mingling all here and there. And it wasn't used to that at first. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, people might not know that you had this quite a lot of the time growing up you spent in Wales. Um, right. But, I mean, but you, but you were obviously quite keen to get back to, to the States. Well, I never really assimilated, right? You know, because like I'm, you know, like, uh, I, I never really, you know, I, I had an American accent, um, my, mo my mother, you know, brought me back uh, after getting custody of me after a, a pretty rough divorce between my parents uh, in, in the year 2000. And uh, I started going to school in the UK and, you know, it was like a culture shock from moving from one, one country to the other. Even though I visited quite frequently, I traveled all over Europe and um, the UK by this point. But my family, uh, you know, going through this sort of split, which was a very significant split. I mean, I was away from my sister. I was with my mother, who became increasingly dependent on alcohol. And, uh, and then I would go to school and just sort of have to make new friends, navigate a new culture. And also, like, I was, like, I, I, it was the first time that I really 
because like, you know, I was like 13 years old, right? And I'm encountering, you know, students who see all this stuff on the news about like the war on terror and, you know, people are blaming me for like the, the, the American, about, um, you know, talking to me and blaming me for American foreign policy. And I, I'm like, I'm 13. I have nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> like, you know, I don't even know what's, what, what's going on. And, you know, just, uh, it, but yeah, it, I never really, like I, I did make friends and I, you know, I'm still friends with them to this day, of course. Um, but, you know, I never really fully assimilated into the UK, and I never, it never felt like home. Uh, I never, I never really felt like I was, I was at home, uh, even, even though, like, I, like, I, I did at one point, you know, consider, like, going to, um, University of, uh, Bristol or Cardiff, and at, at various points, uh, I mean, I think Birmingham University for Engineering gets at one point as well. Um, but yeah, like, uh, you know, but I, by the time my mother, by the time my, my mother had a, a couple strokes at the age of her mid-50s, um, I knew that this was, that, that I wasn't, that I was essentially going to be stuck in Southwest Wales trying to take care of, you know, a potentially disabled mother um, and really kind of being stuck. And I, I wanted to do more. And, I, and so I, I reached out to my sister. My sister... Push, pushed me out, off to my to my father, and I returned back to the you know around end of 2005, and I had finished uh, I had finished secondary school at this point, so I, I moved back in with my father, and uh, and by by this time he had remarried, he had he had had another child, or you know like he had married into you know having having other children from a previous marriage, uh, and. Um, you know, and I didn't really fit in, and you know I and eventually his new wife. And I butt heads constantly, uh, especially because I was like a gender non-conforming person. So I, um, so yeah. So eventually, I got kicked out of my house. Uh, I, I got kicked out of my dad's house, and um, I uh, borrowed uh, my father's truck. I, you know, I took it uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and headed out. Uh, and you know, first they stayed with my sister. Then I went out to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I tried to stay. I, I, I tried to stay at, uh, at my pre whenever I was living in Oklahoma, my my best friend's house, um, which lasted for about a week before I was like, okay, like this this whole thing, uh, staying with my best friend is not going to work out, um, sneaking into his house or whatever. Uh, and uh, uh, I uh, drove out to I dr- drove out to the city of St. Louis, got there, and I was like, okay, I've got enough gas money, like oh, let's see how much further I can go, and I saw the sign for Chicago, so I drove out to Chicago, Illinois, and uh, that was where I settled for the next few months, was mm-hmm. the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. You then, I mean, fast forward a bit of time, you, you decide, you live with, with your aunt um, for, for a while, and then you decide to go and um, join the military. Right. And I think, um, you know, you, there's a, you write about the very many sort I of reasons. I work at Starbucks as well. That <laughs> I miss out Starbucks, of course. Went to univer- you- I, I, started, I started taking university courses, but, um, you know, like, it was, it was limited because, like, I was working while also trying to do it through, like, you know, adult school programs. It was a very complicated arrangement to try to finish getting my, my degree because I was shooting for a physics degree. But the reason, um, the many reasons I think that you, ch- because people, you know, might have felt surprised in the sense that you then, with all those things you talk about, the engineering, you chose the military, but... Um, I don't know, there- I don't know why. I mean, this is precisely the reasons why most people join the Yeah, it's, it feels like it, it was um, a, a sort of sense of belonging you were seeking there. Right. And also trying I was to- con- 
yeah, I did. I had no idea what was the point of doing anything. Like, you know, like I, I was working two jobs. It wasn't enough to pay for anything. Um, I was paying for tuition because in the U.S. you, you pay quite heavily on, uh, for tu- tuition, um, you know, which is increasingly the case here. But um, in, but in the U.S. in particular at this time, it was it was it was exorbitant. And yeah, I was I was trying to I, I was trying to figure out like what am I doing? Like what is it that I'm doing? Like I'm working an enormous amount of time. I was work I, I had I was either uh, in class uh, working at Starbucks, working at some other odd job, and maybe getting sleep in, in there and somewhere in there. Um, it was, I was working or studying for uh, 100 to 110 hours a week, which was extremely unsustainable. And, uh, and I started to break down. And I was wondering, like, what do I do? Like, like what, what can I do? And also, like, you know, I'm just sort of like, oh, my goodness. Like, you know, it was the first realization, like, maybe I'm trans. Maybe, you know, I finally knew that, you know, sort of trans people... Uh, existed that you could get hormones and that was an option, but it would seem like an expensive option because it wasn't covered by by health insurance in that era, um, like it is now in the, in the states. And I, I was just like, what am I doing? What's the point of anything? What you know? Wh- where where do I go? Everything costs everything costs enormous amounts of money. I don't know how to make enormous amounts of money. Um, and my fa- and and I want to rekindle my, the relationship with my yeah. father. Uh, and um, I finally. I got back in touch with him, and he was very insistent. You know, I, you know, you should enlist in the Navy, and um, you know, I'm very because he was very proud of his time in the Navy, and you know, very very heavily influenced by it. He's like, he'll give his structure, and also like the the Iraq War was really starting to to to, to come off at this point. So this is the um, this is the time of the troop surge. It was like. Uh, in, in my aunt's household, this was a dinner table conversation, right? It was on the evening news every night. You know, there was the household names of, like, Robert Gates, of Donald Rumsfeld, of, you know, sort of the, 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 the endless discussions about the, the troop surge in Iraq, whether we have enough, whether there's enough boots on the ground, whether, you know, we continue to be there or, or not. And, um, and then there's also the recruiting effort that's ongoing. So, like, the military was recruiting very heavily, and they were offering these very hefty bonuses. And so my father uh, insisted on me enlisting in the Navy, uh, and I was like, you know what, like, I'm being rebelled, being, me being still kind of rebellious, I was just like, oh, well, I guess I'm, you know, I'm, I'll enlist in the Marine Corps. And so I, I went over to the Marine Corps uh, recruiting center, and um, they weren't there that day. They, they, it was, they, their, their recruiting depot was, was closed, but right across the hall from that was the U.S. Army uh, recruiting uh, center, and I, I popped in there expecting sort of, I, I was hoping to maybe get like a brochure or something, and so I popped my head in, and uh, and I kind of you know it's it's funny because like I, I kind of had this impro- you know because like I was a I was about 105 pounds it was pretty small like five foot two and so I, I poked my head in thinking like oh they'll laugh at me and then it was just like these three recruiters just all turned their heads looking at me like I was fresh meat and uh, and yeah they all and and then they they sort of jumped on it and I was just like y'all have a bro you know do y'all have a brochure and they're like. <laughs> Like, come sit down. <laughs> yeah, when you write about this, it's extraordinary how unbelievably keen. They won't let you go. I mean, everything that could have stopped you, right. they're, they're just very, very keen that you, that you join. Um, I think the only they're very thing... insistent, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you, and you say um, it was a sort of a, um, a sense of sort of belonging and pleasing your father again that really kind of yeah, drove I mean, Yeah, I, 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 and, you know, he, he, seemed, you know, he showed up to my graduation, um, 
both both the graduation from basic training and uh, to the graduation from uh, my uh, intelligence uh, school uh, training. And uh, and yeah, he was very proud. He was very excited. He was just like, oh yeah, you know, she showed up. He like him showing up to to to, to something and traveling to to go see me was meant a lot to me. Mm. Um, so if we forward to when you get to Iraq in the right. end, um, when you were first there, perhaps you could um, explain what it was you were doing and why at the beginning you, you didn't have time to process um, this surveillance on a philosophical level. You had this extraordinary access to people's lives, but it was so busy at the beginning, you didn't sure. have I mean, well, thoughts. we're skipping some parts because like, I, was, I was in the States for about a year before yeah. this. So uh, after initial training, then I hit... You know, I, I sort of reached Fort Drum, New York, and I, uh, I'm at my, I'm at my unit, and we're on the the Homeland Security mission, right? Which you know, we're bordering Canada, so not exactly the most exciting work at this time, but uh, but we were also doing pre-deployment work for where we just, we we were originally slated to go to Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, December 2009. So um, my job and my role essentially was to keep up with what the current unit that was deployed to at the to, to the Logar and Wardak provinces of Afghanistan, and really pay attention to like what what that unit was doing, you know, the, what, what the intelligence reporting was doing, and then bring this up, you know, and, and produce a, a kind of, a, of of an intelligence. Uh, pre-deployment, you know, package, if you will. And, you know, this took several months to develop and build and maintain. And uh, this really became, this really became a job, which was, uh, which was completely thrown out in April of 2009. You know, like I had done this job for about seven or eight months at this point, And we had still about another five or six months uh, to go before, you know, our um, December deployment. And uh, then we got bumped up to an earlier slot. We had to completely redo everything for an earlier slot. And then we were going to, oh, hey, just, oh, by the way, we're completely changing our theater of operations to Iraq instead. Which, you know, made sense from the perspective of other people who had previously deployed, because, like, our unit, 2nd Brigade Combat Team, had deployed four times to this region already um, it was actually the mo- at the time in 2008, uh, 2009. It was the most deployed and also the 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 the, the most uh, had received the m- most amount of casualties of any U.S. Army main mainline unit, like mm-hmm. as opposed to like a special operations unit, uh, like a, just a standard infantry uh, brigade. So uh, you know there was this there was just sort of the sense of like oh god no not again from some, some of the people who had deployed a few times. And uh, and you know I was you know I was I was I was frustrated with the fact that my sort of package had been thrown out, but and that we were building a new one. But I was also excited because you know I was like finally I've done all this training. I'm ready to do my job. I'm actually kind of good at this. Um, I'm getting a lot of good feedback from mm-hmm. the officers, and um, and so I st- you know and and I start you know I work I work on the Iraq uh, the, the Iraq pre-deployment package. And you know it's, it's exciting work, and I, I was really looking forward to it. You know, I was like, I was like, okay, like. And but then there was the older people and the people who had deployed to Iraq previously, uh, mostly uh, on at least one deployment, but you know, some some even two, three times previously, and who were just like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're, you know, like I wouldn't be excited at all. Um, this, this like 
pessimistic jadedness and like this like wa- this wariness around it. And I was just like, oh gosh, what is it, what is this? Um, so I finally deploy in October of 2009, and uh, you know, uh, and I'm excited. I'm like, hit the ground running. Um, but it be- became very clear that sort of even even as a even as an intelligence analyst, you know, being sort of getting this this sort of packaged information previously, how there was this vast discrepancy between you know what what I as a because I consider myself a fairly informed and educated you know person. I wasn't necessarily very political, um, but I uh, I did consider myself well informed, and uh, and I and I got the sense that. What we what we were actually doing and what the on the ground reality was just was so vastly different than what the uh, average person was, and I was warned about this by my by my colleagues who had deployed previously. Mm. You, because there's a moment where you just um, start to sort of identify that what you feel you what you feel the military are are in fact agents of destruction. You call well, them. It's a bit com- it's a bit more complex than that. So I think that the way this works is. Because, like, you know, I'm a data, I work in data science, and, you know, I, I can't really get into the nuts and bolts of what, I, of what my job was as an analyst, but, like, ultimately, my job was to take an enormous amount of information from various data sets uh, from across the board, far more information than, you know, was even touched in the sort of disclosures or whatever, um, you know, s- certainly much more sensitive sources of information, and build a model um, using... We had we had a, a room full of servers of like 2007 to 2009 era, you know, Dell blades, and we, we essentially had to do these the the build these uh, artificial intelligence, what we would now know as artificial intelligence and machine learning um, training models, and try to produce predictive analysis as to sort of a weather report. Um, you know, the, the equivalent of sort of whenever you're looking at, uh, I, know, I know that y'all don't really see them very often because you mostly get just temperatures of whether it's raining, but, you know, in the, in the U.S. You'll, you'll see that there's like, the, there's like sort of radar images and like the expectation of like, of like, of like extreme storms and, and hurricanes and things like that. So we're building this, this weather uh, model pattern um, for what's going to happen in terms of how, how the war plays out over the, you know, where the potential hotspots are going to be based on all of these different sources of information. And, uh, you know, I'm feeding, I'm sort of feeding and training and honing in these, these, these algorithms with this, you know, we had to chunk the data. So, because, you know, we just had, only had so much computational power. But one of the things that I started to realize was um, there were these feedback loops, right? So um, we weren't just able to, because... All of the different feeds of information, you know, were transparent, right? This wasn't just, like, enemy activity. This wasn't just civilian activity. This wasn't just, like, our activity. Like, it was just all, just all mushed in together, although you could untangle them. And you could see that, um, you know, whenever there was a hot spot of activity uh, and we responded to it, uh, there would be a response to the response, and then our, we, our response and there was an escalation, a sort of echo effect, and... Uh, it became very clear that our behavior in response to these things was also predictable. And so there were these feedback loops that were happening, con- continuing. And we could, like, you could see this plan out through the model. It was even these, these fairly early model, uh, th- these early modeling methods. And, uh, and, and it became very clear that, um, you know, uh, and I even brought this up with my officers once. I was like, I was like sir, like, uh, I... 
You won't believe this, but I, I'm fairly certain that our response to this activity will be this, based on the model and uh, our previous behavior and all these different other sources, and, and, and this is based on what the computer is saying. And, you know, and it was just it was this sort of deliberate, almost deliberate misunderstanding of it, you know, like, where it was just like, it was just like, oh, so the computer agrees with me then. And it's just like, no, like, that's not what we're, that's not what we're getting at here, uh, sir. And so it, it was very clear that, you know, this was just a continuing issue and it was like an unresolvable thing. And, you know, it was just, it was just such a, um, and yeah, like, while, while I'm doing this, I'm just sort of like, okay, like, this is a treadmill. Like, we're just sort of doing the same thing. And all the other people who had been, who had deployed previously and the people who had, you know, had, had come on this deployment uh, with me as well, you know, we were all just sort of like, what, what are we doing? Like, what is, what is, what is our actual mission here? You know, what, what, what is the, the, the end goal or the end state goal? It just feels like we're here to, you know, and I've been told, you know, many occasions, you know, it was just sort of like, just pull, keep your head down, you know, get a pay, you know, just do, take the paycheck, go home, you know, uh, retire, become a contractor, whatever, you know, just like, you know, like, like I, I, I just, it just felt it. Just, it just felt very, very jaded and very, um, gl- you know, sort of bleak. I mean, you're, what you're saying and what you're questioning and what you question is the idea that the war's built on these unreliable boundaries. You talk about of good and bad, and you don't. You don't sort of put your head down. You obviously um, right, spend a you lot know, of time um, in online chat. In, in online is where it's where you turn to. Right. And, yeah. And, and I wonder if you could tell people about this um, relationship you formed with. It is WikiLeaks, but at the time... Well, there's so many other people at this time, though. Uh, like, uh, yeah. these, these, are, these are very busy chat rooms. Very busy chat rooms. But what's interesting um, is how you talk about the fact that, in a way, your um, giving of what became the collateral murder tape to WikiLeaks almost was the formation of WikiLeaks as an organization. I guess, but, you know, like, it could have been anyone else. It was, it was really a tip... It was really a, a, a fluke. So how, how did it happen that you ended up giving that tape to them, which then sort of well, built I mean, that relationship? Well, I mean, I mean, like, like I like I was like, okay, like here's a big outlet, the Washington Post. That was how it had in my brain. Um, I didn't know about Dan Ellsberg. I didn't know about the Pentagon Papers. I, you know, I, I I knew about a lot of Vietnam, but I I really didn't know about this the, this time period. I knew uh, I knew about uh, you know the, the Nixon stuff, like Watergate. Um, you know, because I, I I had seen movies too. And uh, I, um, you know, I had this Im- Im- image of like, you know, this ha- sort of handoff, right, where I'm like handing off an SD card in like a parking garage, like a Washington po- Post reporter or something. And you know, so so it was like it was it was like uh, 1971, but but digital, I guess. Um, and so that that was what I tried to make happen. And you know, I, while I've been very technical and I've been in the online space, I've been on IRC chats and I've done sort of political activism inside and outside sort of these online spaces before, you know, it, like, uh, this, 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 this really could have, you know, it, I mean, like, the, the Washington Post reported, if they had just known a little bit about encryption or if, or if Signal was, was available, this would have, you know, it would have drastically changed the outcome of how this happened, you know. And, I mean, even, even, how, the, uh, even how the Starbucks Internet worked that day was just sort of a fluke. But but um, so what, what what do you mean when you talk about getting the video out to to WikiLeaks? It's you, not, you it's not video. It's like, and it's turned them, you say, into an actual organization rather than simply an, an affinity group. It was sort of felt like that moment was 
sort of formed their, them as a group. I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think. So, so but that, that collateral um, murder tape was one of the tapes, but there was a, a, a number of other stuff that ended up getting into the public domain. Right. And you were obviously um, eventually found out. You, you talk quite... Well, I mean, like, yeah, it was kind of hard to miss. So how... how <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, my, you, well, I mean, and I really did. I kind of struggled with this uh, after a while because I was like, I was like, you know, because I, I, one of my concerns was they can figure out, they can figure out where, where, which office is coming from. So just my, one of my concerns was that I was worried that, you know, they would get disentangled with uh, other people, like, from my office. Mm. So, so you, you you talk quite briefly um, in the book about the mo- the mo- you know how it came to be that they right. they knew it was you, but, th- but they come they come to get you and there's an extraordinary um, description of how you initially feel this extra- complete numbness um, sure. th- um, as you're taken away, and then you end up in Kuwait and all yeah, your mem- and that's even more numb because it's like you know I'm just sort of in a big steel box and the in a tent in Kuwait with no idea what's going on. Nobody's telling me anything. Um, there was like two na- there, there, there was two Navy masters at arms. They were called MAs. Uh, and, uh, and they just sort of watched me at all times. It was kind of ridiculous. You, you say, um, but I, yeah, I start, but yeah, I start, you know, there's, there were two heaters or not he- heaters, but coolers. There were air conditioners that one of them worked, one of them didn't work. One of them worked. And then, then the other one worked. It was just, off and on kind of situation in a tent, so it's a it's a it's a dual walled tent, um, so you can't see any light from the outside, um, and I'm just inside this cage, and you know they're just coming and feeding me, and the lights are on constantly, although it's kind of dim, uh, and yeah, that was like my experience for about 59 days. I had no idea how many days it was because there's no way to keep count, no, no way to keep track. It's actually one of the blurrier parts of my of my time period mm-hmm. is just sort of being in this empty cage. I remember. Very distinctly, that the one thing I remember is that there was a sign uh, that told you where the cage was made, uh, which was uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. You say all your memories of that time are trauma memories, and you then go to um, Quantico, Virginia, where, which later was described as cruel, inhuma, inhuman, and degrading. And yeah, I said but from, it, from my perspective, uh, from Kuwait, I viewed it as an upgrade um, in my in my state because it was like, oh, it's, you know, like I'm home, like I'm here in the U.S. I was actually told uh, some of the some of the navy some of the navy folks actually um, pl- were screwing around with me, and they're, they're like, oh, we're going to put you in the the bottom of the USS Boxer, which was the cruiser ship mm. or something like that. And, you know, like I'm breaking on, on the Boxer, which I get. What do they do? Bad things to people there. And then there was the um, uh, then, then some of them were, were like, "You're going to go Guan, you're going to go to Guantanamo Bay, and you know, like other stuff like that." And you know, you, you couldn't, you couldn't in my state, you really couldn't tell if they were joking, or if they were serious, or um, or anything like that. Uh, so, but yeah, eventually I, I was taken to Quantico, um, and uh, the MAs uh, delivered me to the Marine Corps, and I was like, "Oh wow, like there's hot and cold food, there's uh, air conditioning that's stable." Um, it's a it's a building with hot and cold running water. Um, it's well lit. Like initially, like there was this like sense of like this, oh this is an upgrade. Like and then I actually got to see my family. You know, it was behind you know two inches of of whatever material they, you know this this uh, plexiglass was you know, as a partition. But you know, I got to see my family. It was the first time that I got to see my family, and then actually start to talk to a lawyer and mm-hmm. you know realize you know, sort of the charges and navigate through sort of the the 
the, the defense process. I said at the start of my introduction that you were um, very, un- you were sort of almost the last person to know often about the storm that you yeah. were the center of. When did you and how did you come to know what you'd set in motion, what the outside world was making of all sure. of this? Sure. Gunnery Sergeant Blennis, that was his <laughs> name. Uh, he sat me down after I arrived at Quantico, uh, and he said, you're famous, aren't you? You're on Fox News all the time. And I was like, I, was like, I am? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, yeah. And that was how I found out. What did you make of that? Well, I, you know, like I, I, I hadn't even had the charges explained to me at that point. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, like, so, you know, here's, he's casually telling me about, you know, what's happened in the last 59 days. I have no idea. And I'm just sort of like, like, Yes, Gardnery Sergeant. Hey there. I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you quote Obama and Hillary Clinton in the book. You say, Hillary Clinton said of, of what you'd done, puts li- people's lives at danger, threatens our national security, and undermines mm-hmm. our efforts to work with other countries to solve shared problems. Obama later said, you know, I can't conduct diplomacy on open source. You said you thought he was really pissed off. Pissed off. Um, when you, well, when you, I mean, like, not personally, but certainly the, the office yeah, and the, the, office. the White House was And, and we'll come upset, to, to, to him again. Do, do you, with either of those comments, um, have any understanding of what they said or sympathy with their words? Sure, I mean, like, you know, the, the, you know, like, they're, of course they're mad. You know, it's like the, the U.S. government... Uh, this, this, this time in this context is the United States and many other, you know, large states and state actors and institutions are really coming to grips with the reality of the sort of the information-driven age, where information, is like today, flows more, much more freely, right? Where, you know, people often, you know, say, "Well, you're, well, this is, this is rapid, you know, this is, uh, this is radical transparency." It's like, well, you know, by today, by today's standards, we live in radical transparency. Like almost everything gets out almost immediately, right? Um, but this is the first time that these sort of institutions have sort of come across this idea of like perhaps, you know, sort of like, like information, you know, we can't really do anything anymore because it ends up, you know, on Twitter or on my, or on, on Facebook or, you know, whatever social media, you know, sites are, 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 you know, popular in 2010. And, you know, so, so yeah, this is the first time. And then it progressed throughout the, the rest of the early to mid 2010s, this sort of, this wrangling of, of, of large, seemingly impenetrable institutions just sort of like, you know, dealing with the fact that widespread internet access and widespread spread, you know, widespread spread of information is is now the norm. What about, um, I mean, obviously I quote Hillary Clinton here, but lots of people, you know, and and the reason you were put in prison for so long was this was the charge that you had put people's lives in danger that you'd threatened national yeah i mean security. like you know my job was to kill people i mean put lives people put lives in people's you know put people's lives in danger all the time mm. it's it's a uh, life and death issues are a pretty common issue whenever you're 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 dealing in the national security space so um you know like uh you know like it it, it it's 
it's it's just another decision among so many other. But I do think that you know I I, I think that you know in, in the end, as we were going through the court martial process, I think that it, it says a lot about sort of the the way that the government um, viewed this stuff is, is that they they instead of mentioning actual harm, they like. Re- would remove any sort of language about like causing harm or causing damage as to could have or hypotheticals, which are very difficult to prove in a court, right? And it's very difficult to like counter somebody saying this could have happened, right? You know, which is is a frustrating sort of process to go through. But you know, my lawyers did a fantastic job of sort of addressing these things. Yeah, the, the could have keeps coming up where they try very very hard um, right. to make you agree that you aided the enemy. This keeps coming up, and you're yeah, you are the, absolutely that was a adamant. bizarre charge. That was a that was, like you have to understand, and look, this is important for me especially because this had never happened before. Nobody had ever gone to pretrial confinement or to prison or been held in these kinds of conditions. Nobody, like, the previous person that I was aware of, which was Thomas Drake, was out on bail. He had never been gone to jail. He had uh, been arrested briefly, you know, but released same day for, uh, for, for the, for, after being accused of an unauthorized disclosure. This was a, this, this was, I mean, you know, Dan Ellsberg had never gone to prison. I didn't know about his case, but Dan Ellsberg had never gone to jail for the, the Pentagon Papers. You know, he was accused, and he had a court-martial, but he was, or not a court-martial, but a, um, a federal trial. You know, he was brought before a federal court, but he was out on bail. He was, like, out and about, and so, like, my, you know, like, no, this has never happened before. Nobody had ever gone to jail before for this. I was the first person to go to jail for, disclo- for uh, an unauthor- unauthorized disclosure to the press, right? So, you know, like, there was no precedent. This has never happened before. The expectation, the understanding that everybody seems to have now is very strange to me because this had never happened before, right? And so, like, everybody is like, oh, well, you know, you should, like, you, did, did you think you were going to prison? And I was like, no, it had never come up before. Yeah, there was, say, there was no examples, mm. and you say you just that just wasn't something you had thought that would well, happen. Well, I, I thought I, I thought you know like I'll face getting potentially discharged or losing my security clearance. Like these were, then these were a big deal, like mm. to a jun, to, to a junior intelligence analyst at, at the age of twenty two. Like having a security clearance, having a TSSCI security clearance, that was a big deal. That was a career ender. Losing that thing meant you know essentially. A complete life path change, out the door and you know out back to Starbucks, right? So that like that was that you know like that was a, that that was very grave and very serious to me, and I took that very ser- very seriously. And but that 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 was the range of potential consequences that were really understood at that time in in 2010. And what you ended where you ended up was yeah incredible. I mean, you and, say you, you know, say I think how that imp- the overreaction just speaks to the to how far this you know the the, the the these institutions had had gone off the rails. When you um one of the really important things about writing in detail of the trial is is you you say it's important that people understood the nuance of, of what you did and many people thought it was about peace. But you yeah. you you for you um there were there were two things that were really important looking back that you were a transparency advocate above all. It wasn't yeah. necessarily... And also, people have said, and even um, your legal team argued, that it was influenced 
um, that by your gender dysphoria, that pushed you yeah, to breaking point. Yeah, that's a separate issue. And you know, I, I find it frustrating whenever people talk about identity, like of who the person is, because like the government always wants to dig into who you are, right? Mm. You know, like it's. But you it's, were very keen um, to say because, like, what if I was what if I was what if I was an African American male, right? You know, yeah. like if I if I had had that background, it would have been all about that, right? It's always the identity of the person, not the not not what the authenticity or the meaning of the action, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it, it was very important to you write in the book to say, I mean, you say um, the strategy that they used about uh, the idea. Yeah, nuts and sluts, as they call it. <laughs> you, yeah, that make, make, like, what are your words? You say that um, it, it kind of continues even now to, to weigh on you, that that strategy and the idea of there was any causal relationship. Between oh, yeah, the, the, the sort of defense strategy. Well, the, you know, it was either that or we had no case whatsoever, right? We had no, because like the, 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 the way the military structured this and the way that the, the uh, federal courts had sort of limited um, these cases and have continued to limit these cases is um, there are three pot potential defense approaches in, in, in a court martial that I had available to me. The first was um, that I could argue that I didn't do it which was not available because, you know, like it was, uh, it was pretty clear that, you know, the, that like, you know, and I wasn't even trying to high, you know, try to try to argue that oh, it was somebody else, right, or that this didn't happen, um, you know, because it clearly happened and it was pretty clear that, you know, like, a, and I wanted to take responsibility for it. The second uh, thing is is that um, you were incapacitated in some way. It's the sort of the equivalent of like the insanity defense. But it's a little broader in that, you know, like you could be incapacitated from a health reason, you know, you could have been unconscious, you could have um, been on, on, on an extraordinary amount of substances that weren't, you know, somebody drugged you or something like that. Um, that wasn't available because I was awake, I was uh, there, I was, I was fairly stable, I was sober. Uh, and the third option was... Um, was a mitigation strategy, which is what we had to take, which is basically taking every single aspect of every single bit of life and then exaggerating it to a point, you know, to where, you know, you can argue, well, extenuating circumstances, you know, uh, mean that this, is, that this should be treated with more leniency or that there is more to the story here. So it's about extenuating and mitigating circumstances. You know, and that was the only strategy that we had. Otherwise, it would have just been the prosecution arguing stuff and then us sitting there and going... We rest our case, you know, because there's no there's there's no public interest defense for this. There's no there's no arguing that you know this is the, we were barred. We were explicitly barred throughout the process, and it's normal practice in the on, under U.S. Uh, law for uh, unauthorized disclosure cases involving national security information that it um, that that uh, no defense um, uh, no no public interest defense be raised. You know, it it's either it's either classified at the time of its release. Uh, and and it was released, uh, or it wasn't, and that's it. Like that's all that you can raise. While you're going through this process, um, Edward Snowden and the news mm -hmm. about um, his leaks comes out, and you say while you support um, Ed Snowden, the timing was <laughs> I mean, difficult. It was, just was difficult for you. Yeah. Um, do you wonder if you could explain that? How it's I mean, influenced? I mean, it was you know that wasn't intentional, right? You know, like I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that, but like you know, it's, it, it was like it was a third day of trial. So, you know, the reporters, the, the courtroom was packed every day at this point. You know, it was three, it was like a few weeks of pretrial, uh, of like pretrial hearings. And then we get right into the court martial. And then 
the, the, the Ed Snowden uh, leaks happened, and obviously he wasn't out yet. He, was, he hadn't identified himself. But uh, as soon as that news broke, like, there was just no press there. There was, like, three people there. Went from, like, 60 people to, to three overnight. So it was, it, was, it was frustrating because we were, we were really starting to try to put on our case and, you know, put on our, our defense, and nobody was watching, nobody was recording. Um, I need to get to the audience questions. I could carry on for probably at least yeah, another I mean, hour, yeah. but let uh, me just well, ask you... And, um, well, I mean, what, I do so much other stuff now, you know. It's just like, so let, let me ask you exactly, but like, um, well, should we move to the now part? But I, I want to know why, um, why you say that in some ways military prison, I think people would be surprised to hear you say, you said in some ways military prison was the only place you felt you ever really fit, I really fit in. Well, I mean, like, say that because, like, I've spent so long in there, um, <laughs> but... You know, like, uh, but, you know, think about this, especially in the context of living in the United States in, 20, in the 2020s, right? Um, things have become so politically unstable in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Things, uh, you know, nothing is really provided for people. Um, and everything feels very uncertain, right? Um, you know, I don't know what tomorrow brings. Um, whether, whether it's, like, just small-scale personal stuff, like, I don't know, you know, what, whether I'll have access to health care next month. I don't know whether I'll have, uh, be able to pay the bills, for next month, I don't know if, if I'll be able to pay rent for next month, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that level of uncertainty, like things that I'd never really had to deal with in prison because it was just everything was provided for. I had health care. I had housing. I had, uh, I knew who, I, I knew, sort of knew sort of where the factions were and who the different groups of people that I had to interact with were on, on, any, on any given day. You know, there was no question about whether I was getting food or not. The, all of these you know, with supply chain issues and, and sort of instability and price fluctuations and all the rest of it was in the U.S. I don't even know what the what government, you know, U.S. is going to, the region of the where the U.S. is, is going to have in five years. Like the amount of instability and the amount of uncertainty that comes from being out and about in the world is, 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 is quite, is, 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 hits me very hard. I don't feel as secure. I don't, like in comparison to, the way that I did whenever I was in, I was in general population in prison. It's mm-hmm. Different in solitary confinement, but general population in prison, you, you, like, you can sort of have a social life. You can sort of have some stability. You can sort of have, I mean, and obviously, you know, like living among an inmate population, you sort of have people who have your back, and you sort of know where things stand um, on, on, any, on any given day. And, you know, just, it, it's just such a... I, I don't know where people stand. I don't know who, who's being truthful. I don't. I can't really check on people. Uh, on where and, and people keep changing, and they, and, and they keep, um, you know, like, I, you know, it just it just feels like it just feels like people, you know, the relationships that we have in the outside world are so much more superficial than the ones that, we, that exist in prison. So many more questions. I can't um, dominate them any more, though, because uh, we've got um, some time and uh, we've got some microphones and some questions. Can I put in a, a, a little request that you make your questions as concise as possible? Because um, I'd love to get through as many as we can. Um, and so just to do that, we need to just keep them, keep them quick, if you could. I have a question about where the personal meets the political. And I've read that you went into the army hoping that it might help you with your own gender uh, and identity issues and you got bullied and it didn't work. Then you discover that your country has an identity issue. It's presenting itself in one way and acting in another. Do you feel the personal fueled the political and gave you an arena where you could solve a problem that was much 
more straightforward than the one you personally had. Yeah, I, I feel a bit uncomfortable trying to conflate the two because they're just so different. They're so radically different. Um, and also, you know, just sort of my personal journey has been so different than, you know, the journey of, uh, of me learning how to navigate sort of the bigger picture and, and the more abstract things, right? So um, I don't, me, me personally, I, don't, I, 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 I hesitate and I'm, I don't feel comfortable trying to, to compare the two because they're just so, and like, I, and to say that the U.S. is going through an identity crisis is putting it like quite mildly. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I, I, I think that it's, you know, like this has been going on for a very long time and I don't, I, I, I think that this, I think, you know, like I was aware of this, certainly, um, you know, sort of the, the, the political landscape of things. But yeah, I think, I, I think that, uh, I, I, I think that the, the, the discrepancy between um, what, what, I, what I thought I knew things were versus what the reality was, and then also trying to communicate with pe people back home about sort of what was going on um, really struck me. I mean, I, I recall s significantly, uh, a, a most, most poignantly, there was this Thomas Friedman piece, uh, you know, uh, while he's kind of mocked now, he's very taken enormously seriously in this time around 2010. He, he had written an article which basically... Was a was a 180 from like the position of of, of many in, in the liberal establishment from a year a few years prior during the Bush administration, which was essentially that, oh, actually now that you know Iraq is having elections uh, and now it's peaceful and it's stable now 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 the Iraq war was justified or or whatever. But like the reality was is that things were very unstable, things were very precarious, and you know the the, the election process was far from a fair one. That was occurring. This was just the sort of on the ground reality, and it was very clear that the framing of this um, was missing a lot of was was missing a lot of the, the, the real world con, con, you know context that is no longer missing. Right? People know this now, and it, you know, it, and it's it's very difficult to sort of gloss over what you know and sort of memory hole um, this whole time. I do think that you know one of the things that um, isn't meant isn't really mentioned in the book, but that you know was at the forefront of my mind was um, that um, the, uh, I, one, of the, one of my jobs and one of my roles was essentially as a data, as a, as a data scientist and to work with these different, different models was, was to do comparative models, like look at previous data and compare it and sort of see if we could train the model to do better things, you know, to, to like do more, better predictions better, right? And so uh, I, I was definitely very interested in, in trying to obtain um, uh, Vietnam War era data and sort of digitized versions of that, but it turns out that um, all of the equivalent records of what you know is now I mean, well, the Sydney I and Sydney A um, re you know repositories, which is the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs, um, the, equi the, uh, the Vietnam equivalent um, was held, I think, in like Missouri. It was held in a gigantic warehouse in Missouri, but there was a there was a freak fire. It was a Accident that happened in 1978 when all of the all of his records were, were, were have been lost to history. I would like to ask you: Does the government respect your freedom uh, that you have, or they continue intimidating you? And another question: You are a brilliant analyst, and I would like to know, and we would like to know, what will be the best strategy? to free Julian Assange? For the first question, uh, I think that, I think that the government, yeah, I think that the US government has been, 
the, I mean, the U.S. government in particular had, you know, while they were pretty, the, like, it was fairly uncomfortable in the first couple of years. Uh, I feel like, uh, and especially with the, the grand jury um, subpoena in 2019, I, you know, I haven't really encountered much of, of, of the U.S. government. Like, it, there's so much happening in the U.S. right now, it's uncertain where things lie, where the, you know, like, the, it feels like the, 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 the federal government is starting to sort of unravel. The, 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 the U.S. government is sort of going, I mean, the U, and the United States in general is going through a, a tr contraction period where it doesn't have the same influence around the world that it used to. It doesn't have the same, and it, it recognizes this, it, it understands this. Um, and so I feel like because uh, mil the, the military is sort of falling back and, I th and the U.S. influence across the world is, is falling back, you know, and obviously there's, there, like, this is happening with all of the three major powers, you know, where Russia, China, the United States, and a, and a number of regional powers are sort of starting to, to, to come up and be, become more prominent, not necessarily more powerful, but you know, they become more prominent because of this sort of contraction of influence and sort of the, you, you see these state actors that are that are sort of grasping at straws to just sort of maintain their regional balance and a regional influence which is a very different situation than the hegemony that was that was experienced pre previously i think that since uh january since since obviously the um the the the, the election sort of dispute of 2020 and um the uh the the january 6th in incident uh in uh in the the uh, it, Putsch attempt really uh, that happened. Um, the, the the U.S. is just uh, is just increasingly feeling um, like it's it's at a head with itself, uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty. And as for the other question, I, and there's not really much that I can comment on or, or, or say because you know, I mean, like, look, uh, if you just go to the, if you go to the book, like one of the problems that I have is that you know the court martial record is 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 a is you know every uh, basically everything that I have in terms of like. Like the the secrecy uh, agreement with the you know from from my my time in the military um, is covered. So like there's even there's gigantic redactions in this book. There's like black, entire pages blacked out um, because you know like the you know it's yeah there we go you found it. So yeah you know like because uh, you know like they you want and to we, peel we were surprised. It back. We were surprised. We yeah. like turned this because like you know and the, the way this happened is that there was the. Um, there were two cases. So there was the Ed Snowden case, uh, which was a civil case in which they seized his proceeds from the book. Uh, and, uh, and then there was a, a book by John Bolton, a very different book, um, but it was also, uh, there was also a, a court proceeding that happened. And so we, through the publisher, made the decision, okay, you know, like, we're not really covering sensitive stuff here. This is a personal story. This is my life story. You know, I'm not. I'm not getting into the the nitty gritty of the, of the details. Like you can find that, uh, and you can confirm that or deny that, however you want to. Uh, what, what was actually released, um, but you know, I, I can't uh, touch that stuff. Um, you know, legally uh, under uh, you know under U.S. law, um, but you know, I'm able to. We made the decision to 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 push the book through through the government review process and. They asked us to, to redact some portions, and we really, I mean, they didn't ask us. I mean, they told us. Um, so we redacted those portions, even though we, I mean, like, uh, quite frankly, we were, we were shocked. We were, I mean, we, we wouldn't have turned that stuff over to the government if we thought it was safe, if it, was, if it contained sensitive information. So we were surprised. Can I just pick you up? You just mentioned this 
January the 6th putsch that you, as you call yeah, it. The, what, yeah, what, we're going through some things right now. How does that make you react to Trump's uh, sort of um, announcement, I think, was it a day ago that he's going to stand again? Especially I mean, given, it, in the light of the stability and the instability you were talking about that you feel in so, the States at the moment. The U.S. is... And, and the things that he's tried to push through. Right. The U.S. isn't about... Right now, what... I, I know this is, hard, this is harder to explain um, from outside because uh, there's not as much international travel has been going on. But the United States is in a situation where it's... It, it's like, yes, there are figureheads. Yes, there are people discussed. And the, yes, there are, there are all these social media topics. But there is a, con- there is a constant um, anxiety and a constant... Uh, low level like any incident that happens within the united states right now in some in some regions especially it's sort of patchwork quilt um the tinder is so extremely high that it feels like going to the shopping market people are scared and people feel like that like they you know violence could break out like political violence could break out at any moment um, it's that uncomfortable. And Americans, I think, are hesitant to talk about it. Definitely the press is hesitant to talk about it, but everybody sort of feels this. Like, I, you know, I feel it whenever I'm in Europe. Anytime I'm in Europe, I feel, like, I feel, like, super calm, right? And I was out, I, I was in, yeah, I, I, I'm just like, oh, my anxiety levels are just dramatically lower, right? You know, I just don't feel as, I, I don't feel like, so, so, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, and this has happened where, you know, like, people, you know, pe- people are just, very worried. They're very scared. Um, there's, there's not as much. There, there's not a lot of political. Like I would, if, I, if I were an intelligence analyst examining a country, any other country in the world, and I looked at the demographics and the numbers and the statistics and the model of the United States, uh, I, and I would say, I, I would say this is a red flag for a major civil conflict. Like this, this country is is very unstable, and there's about to be, you know, there's about to be uh, extreme uh, factional, violent extremism, violence that happens here in the very near future. Um, and this is what the United States is. I mean, it doesn't. It's not a guarantee that that happens, but I mean, it's it's certainly in a very, very high risk category. And this hasn't dissipated. Like it's just, it just been, uh, it just seems to be getting punted and punted. Yet the the indicators and the the sort of the warning signs just keep rising and rising. I don't think that this is the end of it. And I don't think it's necessarily because of Donald Trump. I think this is, I think this predates Donald Trump. The sort of rise. Um, you know, like obviously Dylan Roof uh, and the, the the shooting of the the, the, the Charles uh, of the Charleston, South Carolina church um, pre was sort of before the Trump era. Um, like the 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 sort of um, extreme the sort of extreme polarization that's happening, not just among like political parties, but just among sort of generational differences and differences in in class and different and identity and. Um, well, and access to, to, to material resources and wealth is so diverse and so stark and so and there's no there's there's no there's no ability to have a conversation in America that is that that is really constructive. It, it is it feels like every single debate or or, or, or conversation is is one of uh, I'm you're like you you I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I mean just. You know, there isn't really the Thanksgiving dinner conversation that that's just so so, so stereotypical historically in the United States. Uh, thank you, Chelsea, for your service uh, to transparency. Um, I spent 13 months in U.S. prisons for anti-war resistance, and I worked with your mother Susan and Uncle Kevin. Do you have a question? Yeah, <laughs> it's coming. Into it. uh, context. 
uh, in solidarity with you. I'm wondering how aware you were of solidarity on the outside, how significant it was to sustaining you in prison. I did not understand that question. Um, how aware you were of solidarity outside when you were inside and how that sustained you. I know you write about the... the oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of, um, people sending me letters is very important. I, I, and one of the things that I try to do now is I encourage people to write letters to people in prison, regardless of their background, who they are, or, or anything, because uh, a letter... A letter for... Because I got many letters, so I got... I think the, um, the final count by the U.S. Army uh, for my time under U.S. Army custody, not including other, uh, other periods of time in which I was in civilian custody, uh, was, I think, uh, 270,000 pieces of mail. Um, so, uh, obviously, I got an, an, an extraordinary amount of mail, and that meant that the prison had to hire additional staff to, to deal with that. Um, but, I mean, and no, but, but seriously, like, like, that doesn't mean that there are people who are in jail that are not getting mail, and that one letter will make a lifetime of difference for that person. It's, it's really tremendous how, how disconnected you are, especially when you're... I mean, this is more the case, I think, in, in U.S. prisons, because U.S. prisons are, are very isolated right now. Like, it's very difficult. Like, the, like in-person visits are, are starting to be scrapped and banned, where it's only... It's only letters, and it's only through a television screen. Like, you will visit a prison now in many, in many jails and prisons in the U.S., and you don't actually sit at a table with somebody. You sit before a television screen, and you have to pay money to use the television screen. Just time for one more, I'm afraid. Um, Esme, you've cho Esme's chosen a, someone that, yeah. Um, do you think that the act of whistleblowing will or has got easier over time? Thank Sorry. you. Well, so precise. Do you I think, think that the act of whistleblowing um, will or has got easier over time? Well, I mean, it's, it's a different era now. Like, now we're so awash in information. Like, you know, this is one of the things that I try to explain to people because it's, it's no longer an issue of transparency versus secrecy. Now bad actors just do this stuff openly, and then there's, like, five or different versions of events that are being sort of thrown around, you know, and, and being spread by different parties, right? So now everybody's sort of being, like... That it's no longer it's no longer that bad actors in the world are trying to hide what they're doing from plain sight because they're doing it in plain sight, but they're, they they manage to get people to say that the, that that thing is not what it just what you just witnessed or saw, right? And I think that uh, verification of information and the filtering of information is a is a far greater issue now than 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 secrecy. But it's it's sort of the same information battle because we're just so awash in information. I mean, I. As an, as an analyst in Iraq, in comparison to today, I, I had access to far more information about what was happening uh, with the, uh, from my laptop computer as a civilian uh, about what was happening and being able to make predictions on uh, what, you know, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, than, I, than I could, than, than I did have access to as an intelligence analyst in Iraq in 2010. So with all of the U.S. intelligence apparatuses, capabilities, and everything. So that's how information-driven we've become and how widely spread this stuff is in comparison to today. It's just a totally different information environment. There's just so much more information out there. I'm, I'm going to, um, just from that, ask you, you, know, you talk about this extraordinary information that they have that you had into people's lives, this insight you had into people's lives. Yeah, that, now, we, have, now we all deal with it every day. Uh, yeah, so how worrying to us as citizens is that? 
just how much information you have then compared to now on what we're doing everyday life or everyday life. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I, 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 you know, like as a as a civilian today, I can definitely learn a lot more about sort of what's going on in your. I mean, if you're on TikTok, for instance, just just you to because TikTok is very good at this, based on swipes alone with your thumb on your screen, how fast you are down to the microsecond can determine your age, your sex, your location, what, uh, like what your background is, what your religious orientation is, um, what your political affiliations are, what your, um, what, what, what your favorite color is. Just based on a few swipes, it learns all of that. So it's not, even, it's not even information that we say or do, but simply our physical movements in the space that we're in can, can, can determine an enormous amount about who we are. I mean, I'm, I'm not. And, then, and this is, and this is in the private sector. This is, this is, this isn't, this isn't government stuff. This is just stuff that a company can obtain. Everyone quickly um, get rid of TikTok, but it's not just that. I mean, obviously, it's so much yeah. else. And unfortunately, I mean, the time has gone by far too quickly, and I've gone over by um, six minutes. But um, just to say, thank you to you, a great audience, thank you. Chelsea. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. This episode of the podcast starred Chelsea Manning and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producers were myself and Esme Bright, and we make the show with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. We host guests live on stage in London every week at How To Academy, and if you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll consider joining us in person. Find out who's coming up at howtoacademy.com. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>